Are you going to get a glass of wine and drink a glass of wine with me? Oh, you know I am. It's up here in my cooler because you were late. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Welcome to Shiny Epi People. I'm Lisa Bodner, and I'm an epidemiologist at the University of Pittsburgh. This is a podcast where epidemiologists well-known for their work talk with me about everything except their well-known work. First, I just wanted to tell you that I am overwhelmed by the positive response that you had to the first episode. To be honest, I had been avoiding starting up this podcast for about a year because I thought it was going to be awful and I was going to make an ass of myself. I mean, I was also avoiding it because I was trying to secure my salary, but you know, that's part. I decided though to finally launch it because we're in this awful quarantine and it's something new and different. And there is nothing new and different in my world nowadays. And so that is why I decided to do it. And, you know, when I did, I thought maybe three people would listen, like me, the guest, and like my best friend, Kara. And she would only endure that because it's like part of the contractual obligation between best friends. But as I started, I realized like how happy this was making me and how much I was looking forward to recording the episodes and planning them and even editing them. And (laughs) the editing is such a fucking nightmare. But even that is exciting to me now. And I think it's because it's a way of connecting with people. I am just starving for connection. I was thinking that perhaps some of the reason that there was such a positive response to the first episode was because others are also yearning for some type of connection. And this is a very, very small way of having that need met. So it's bringing me a lot of joy. And I hope that it's also bringing a little lightness into your life, too. These first couple of episodes are with women who I'm close friends with because I wanted to get comfortable in this role. But I want to assure you that there will be much more diversity coming up. And I'll be chatting with a lot of people who I've never met in real life before. So we're going to see how that goes. Today, I'm talking with Penny Gordon-Larson. Penny is a professor and a vice dean of research. Very fancy, clearly. She's at UNC Chapel Hill Gilling School of Public Health. Penny's a nutritional epidemiologist. Her work centers on obesity over the life cycle. Penny has helped me navigate some really tough decisions that I've had to make. They were regarding times when I was pressured to take on a role that I didn't want to take and to leave a role that I was ready to be done with. She's going to talk today about setting boundaries, about mentorship, motherhood, and other reflections on her very distinguished career. I hope you enjoy our chat. Penny, welcome to Shiny Epi People. Why, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're doing this. I think it's amazing. It's the perfect thing for you to do. I couldn't get to like episode three without including you. So Penny, you're at this really advanced stage of your career and you're very young. And recently you were nominated for a Lifetime Career Award, which I know has led you to really take some time to think about where you are and how you got here. So can you tell us a little bit about that? It just has made me reflect a lot on all of the people who took chances on me and um, recommended me. And I am very lucky. And I do have to acknowledge my privilege and my experience just as a 
as a white person navigating all of this, that there were things that were much easier for me than for others. And I, I think that's an important thing to recognize. And I think that that's changing now. And I feel like there's a much greater commitment to work on this. And I'm hoping that that changes and gets better. How did you find those mentors? I have so many people I go to for advice. My peers, I have people, like I ask you for advice. I ask my kids for advice. I go to kind of, I have some go-to people that I always think of. So people who have mentored me actually through my entire career, like Steve Zizel, who was my department chair and Barry Popkin, who I came to work with as a postdoc, you know, I'll go to them, but then there are newer leaders that I really respect my current department chair and the Dean, just people who have played important roles in my life. And then just people that I respect their thoughts and strategies. I have this great thing at Carolina called the academic leadership program. And it's it was this leadership program that put us into cohorts. So it's like basically a two-year program. And I have these seven colleagues from around campus who are all like doing very different things like Asian studies and Southern studies and medicine and all different things. But we all are sort of coming up as leaders through the university. And so we just get to ask the stupidest questions and um, bat things off of each other. And we read each other's cover letters and talk about the best options for doing things. And we just have each other's backs in a way that's really, really great. And I love it. Can you give me an example or two about how mentors have helped to rise you into this position? When I, it was right when I got my tenure track position, Steve, my department chair asked me to chair the bachelor's of science degree committee. And I was, you know, it was not something I was particularly interested in doing. I hadn't, didn't really think, you know, I didn't know much about the program and I was just trying to buckle down and get my career going. And I knew that there was maybe some way that I wanted to be a leader possibly sometime in the future. And so I talked to him about it and, you know, he, he kind of talked me into it probably because he needed me to do it more than he had faith in me. But, um, (laughs) he did, he did go to bat for me, um, and did convince me to do it. And it was rewarding and it was good. And I think it is good sometimes early in your career, you know, you've got to do things that you might not necessarily really feel invested in. But if you feel like you will learn from it and do a good job at it, then it can be worth it. When I reached out to you recently and said, there's this role that I don't want to take on and I'm feeling pressured to take it on. Your advice was so clear, like, no, you're not doing that. How is it different from the example that you just explained that you felt like, oh, I don't really want to do this, but I should probably do it. That's a tough question. I think there it matters where you are in your career. Like there's never one right answer for any of these things. And it depends where you are, what you have going, how big of a role it is, and if you can actually follow through and do a good enough job. And so in your case, you you knew you were just not at a juncture where that was intellectually interesting at all for you. 
it just didn't seem like it was going to benefit you that you were only doing it to do it as, you know, a kind of a good citizen. And I think there's a big role for being a good citizen, which is what I did in my case. It, it wasn't a time, very time intensive role. And at that point in my career, I would, I had been a postdoc at Carolina. And so stepping into a role where I could be perceived as an independent leader was actually kind of important at that point in time for not that much investment. So I think you have to contextualize it and think about being a citizen, what it means to you and what it could help you in terms of any kind of transitions that you're trying to go through. Did you turn to other people when Steve asked you to do this to get their input or did you just talk to Steve? I think this is something that people often do where they just talk to the person who asked them to do this and said, what's going to be involved? Will this be good for me or not? I mean, you can't say you can't say yes to anything ever right on the spot. I mean, you certainly can, but I just do not recommend that ever. I think you should always say, I'll think about it and walk out the door and and really spend time thinking about it and asking people about it. So I asked Barry, I'm sure, and I'm sure he actually told me that that it was something that I should do. I don't know who else I asked, but I am sure I asked other people. And can you give us that other example of later in your career, the type of mentoring you've gotten? I think a big one was the society president. So I did not apply or put in a nomination. I didn't self-nominate to be society president. So this and is for the obesity society. For obesity society. And they came to me. And so that's another thing that's actually important about when somebody com- when somebody's asking you something. I think we have the tendency to think when somebody's coming to ask us something, we have to say yes because they want us to do it. And I think most of the time somebody's coming to ask you to do something, they're actually ready for you to say no. So if you put that in your head, it makes it easier because they are really anticipating that there's no way you're going to do it. The past president who called me and asked me kind of laid it all out and told me how much time it would take. And I asked him a bunch of questions and then I told him I would think about it. I also tend to research things a lot. So I like <laughs> I called like every past president I knew. Every single one of them that I knew well enough to call, I called like 10 past presidents and just had these conversations with them. And I even called, I called people who were not presidents of, like, I just called people who had done something like it. Each of them told me basically to do it. None of them told me not to do it, but all of them basically said, you are going to put your career on hold for that year. Like you just have to anticipate that it is going to be far bigger of a responsibility than you expect. So I had to think really hard about it. And I had to think about what to get rid of because you can't say yes to something that big and not give other things up. The other thing is you have to be convinced that you can actually do a good job because when you do some of these things, you really have to deliver. And so that was tough. The good thing about one of those kinds of society positions is that there were four years of it. So you got to be like the fly on the wall as the vice president, and then you kind of rotate up and get more and more responsibility. So you really do learn. And that's another thing is that it seems really intimidating to do these things, but everybody who walks in to do them is just as intimidated as you are on the first day that you're doing it. And nobody knows what they're doing unless they've done it for some 
other very similar society. And so you're just kind of figuring it out and hopefully getting as prepared as possible. There were a lot of things, a lot of positives and a lot of negatives about it. But overall, I think it was just an amazing experience. I learned a lot and it was important for me to give back to this society. That society, I feel like really grew me as a scientist and they they did so much for me and I wanted to give back and do as good of a job as I could. And I had some really clear ideas about what I wanted to do. And of course, all of that planning fell to crap because there were emergencies (laughs) that happened. And it was like, you know, I was doing things that I was not prepared to actually do when I was doing them. Setting boundaries seems hard for almost everyone. You are so good at setting boundaries. It's one of the things that I admire most about you. So can you share the areas that you feel like having boundaries helps to improve your work-life balance? I think that changes over time. You know, early on, I said yes far more than I said no. And I I had a lot of great experiences, but I do feel like I, I still have this sort of general principle where I am very protective of my time with my family. I only went to one meeting a year when my kids were little. I tried to be home as much as I could for dinners, like regular dinners. Like I, I put those boundaries around that. I just want, I wanted to be there for my family. So that's, and that's still very important to me. So that's a boundary. I really only want to do projects I believe in. I don't want somebody to tell me what kind of research to do. I want to do things that I think are important, that are impactful, and that are really core to what I'm trying to achieve. And so I really am dedicated to, to making a difference in obesity and in in cardiovascular disease. And so that's just always going to guide me. And I kind of have my like, I know I want to do things that are the integration of biology, behavior, environment. Like I know that's what I want to do. When something comes along that's not that, it's pretty easy to say no, because I know that that's what I'm motivated to do. I've always known that. I've gone kind of off, like early on, I went off that path a little bit to do a little more on the intervention side. It was an important project for me to do because it separated me from my postdoc mentor. So it was good. Early on, that was the only kind of veer that I did. And then the other thing that's super important to me is to work with good people. So I have longtime collaborators who I love dearly and we're really good friends. And we text each other, you know, on the weekends and at nights and in the morning. We're, we're really good friends. They have my back. I have their back. We have Venn diagrams of teams that overlap. I do not want to work with people that I don't enjoy working with. And I have had very few times in my career where I have had to. And so I think that helps because it's just so lovely to be able to be super comfortable with the people you work with, to trust them, to know they'll deliver, to know and respect that they are just brilliant people. It's just so fun. It makes what we do worth doing it. How did you find those people? The first of those people is probably Carrie North. She and I found each other pretty early on. She arrived at university at the same t- kind of same time I did. And we are both kind of goofballs. 
but also very serious about our work. And so we just wrote a proposal together pretty early on and have just continued that work and built other work around it and pulled in new collaborators. um, And so developed that along the way. And that's been just so great. I love that. And so there's just, there's a a group of, of women like that who I work closely with. And I love that. I love that too. That makes work really worthwhile, right? Yes. How, can you give us an example of how you say no when you feel pressured to say yes. Just a couple lines. Just as an example, I feel like a lot of people don't know how that can be said in a tactful, respectful, um, self-assured way. Yeah. I mean, I, I just say, you know, I will think about it. And then I usually will say something like, I'm really honored that you have asked me to do this thing. And, you know, I really appreciate it tremendously. And right now, this just does not fit where I am headed. So right now, my career goal or aspiration or whatever my plan is that I'm really thinking that I want to do why. And and so this would just take me off of that path for for this moment in time. And so right now, it's just not a great fit for me. You know, one of the things when I came to you and said I was asked to do this role, um, you so clearly articulated, like, this is not in your plan. And it's funny because outside of that decision, I would have been able to articulate my plan. And then they asked me, and then it was like my thoughts about my plan just went out the door. And then you were like, but that's not part of your plan. I was like, oh my God, you're totally right. And so it's, I mean, another example of how mentorship is so important and to keep coming back to what those long-term goals are. Yeah. I mean, you have to keep those goals in mind. And so for me, this role that I'm in, the associate dean for research, like when I thought about leadership, what did I want to do in leadership? I wanted to think about research and strategize and build teams and collaborate and think outside the box about science and translate science to development and advancement to make money for the university. Like all of those things were things I really wanted to do. And so I kind of had my eye on that role for a long time. So I think the more in advance you're thinking about where am I headed? What would I really like to do? Then it's really easy to say no, because if you, if you know that's not in your plan, then there's just no reason to do it. And so if you're really clear about that, the thing that's really hard early on in your career is you, you have less agency because you do need to be a good citizen and you, you have to be a team player and you need it for promotion. And so there's these leadership things that you have to do. And some of them just not, are not that interesting. And unfortunately you, you do have to do them. So I think once you get through that stage, I mean, even so when you come in, in a new role, like a new position, like if you're moving universities or starting a new position, you should just think, what would I want to do and what kind of roles are there and what are the good ones? If somebody asks you to do something else, you can just say, well, I want to do that one. And that's fair. Speak up for yourself. At this point, Penny, a third of your way into your life, what makes you happy? (laughs) What makes you happy? 
Okay, wait, can I pause there? So um, <laughs> one, one of the things that with this like lifetime thing, so yeah. one of the things they just recently did actually for Obesity Society, they asked all the past presidents to write basically their obituary and give it to them so they can have it on file. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? Yes. They didn't tell us that's what it was, but then somebody was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Is this our obituaries? I was like, I'm like, what? Like 53? Like, are you kidding me? Did you copy it and send it to your kids and your husband and be like, well, here's a start? (laughs) No, I don't even know. I don't even know what I wrote. So what makes you happy? My kids make me so happy. My kids and my house full of animals. I love, like, I, I actually at every stage of my kidness, my children's stages whenever you call it. <laughs> I've loved everything except when when they were like crying babies. Like yeah. that I was not that into. But you know, every other age has just been so fun. I love having them now that they're, you know, they're 18 and they're 20 and they're they're just very cool people and they're fun and we laugh. And so I totally love, love, love just doing everything with my family. If you could turn any activity into an Olympic sport, which would you have a good chance of winning a medal for? I can really sink a bag of dog poop into a flower pot (laughs) really well. (laughs) Um, I think um, competitive shopping, farmer's market division. (laughs) There's a lot that goes into it. There's more that goes into it than you think. Like you have to know what's in season. You have to know who's going on vacation when. Like I've what been the, wait. With, what does the vacation have to do with it? Oh, because you know if so. For example, the, there's a father daughter farm repair. The daughter makes the salad bags, and so if she's not going to make those salad bags, I am not going to that stand. And you can only be the first person at each. You know, one time, one time. And I see. You know, like there's all these people I know there. So like I like um. Amanda Holliday, I don't know if you know her, but she's a, she's a professor. Like she and her neighbor, Nancy and I, sometimes we do team shopping so that we can like each get to like the things we want. Barry's there in the morning and David Gilkey's there in the morning. It is very competitive. It's so stressful, actually. (laughs) (laughs) This is like super nutrition nerds. Like I have to be competitive with a farmer's market. Like, (laughs) I know it's ridiculous. Why would you be valuable in an end of the world scenario? There are not actually many reasons for that, but I can. (laughs) But you can shop at a farmer's market like nobody's business. (laughs) But I, I will be the person who looks you in the eye when your finger has gotten amputated and be like, oh, it's fine. Like, don't worry. Okay. It's totally fine. You're a calming presence. And I can, um, I am really good at walking in the woods in the dark. So like I could be like the night scout. (laughs) What are your thoughts on honeydew, Penny? I like all the melons. (laughs) One for team honeydew. Uh, I'm keeping a tally and I forgot to ask Carrie Keys last time. She gave it a six out of 10, but I'm going to round it up to a 10. And that means she's team honeydew. So (laughs) you, Carrie Keys, team honeydew. Okay. What is the maximum number of journals you submitted to before the paper was finally accepted? I don't know. But if I had to hazard a guess, I would say seven. Okay. (laughs) 
Would you rather have a third eye or a third arm? Third arm. Why? Because then I could like type and do other things. (laughs) I could eat and type. (laughs) What's your favorite kitchen appliance? My wine opener, of course. Which is worse, laundry or dishes? Dishes, by far. What's your favorite dessert? A hot fudge sundae. With what on it? Like homemade hot fudge, a really gooey brownie, really good vanilla ice cream, whipped cream, a little bit of nuts. Cherry? No. Oh, you're Who doesn't love a cherry? All right. We can still be friends. On a scale of one to 10, how uncomfortable would you be without your smartphone for a week? Eight. Eight meaning? Uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> What's the weirdest thing in your refrigerator or your purse? I have this little Buddha, little pink Buddha. In your purse, not your fridge? In my purse. (laughs) Not in my fridge. (laughs) Uh, What is your go-to COVID quarantine snack food slash emotional crutch? That's hard. Um, It's uh, definitely cheese and Triscuits, but also cheese curls. Last question. Can you name all six Brady Bunch kids? I'm going to time you. Uh, Marsha, Jan, Cindy, Greg. (laughs) Whoa. I don't remember that other one. Think. Mike? That's the dad. Uh, I don't know. Peter? Oh, yeah. Peter. What's the mom's name? Carol. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Bonus points. Do you know what the dog's name is? Come on, pet. It's an animal. Fido? That's not an animal. Bear? Close. Wolf? Tiger? (laughs) (laughs) I, I cheated. Penny, I'm so glad that you could be on the podcast today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, you are welcome. Because I, I seriously did not sleep well last night. So I'm not thinking I really, I, I am not thinking very clearly. Did you not sleep well because of the interview? Well, because of the interview and I ate onions. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>